Father God, it is good to be here with the church. Lord, um, we are a family. We're your family. Um, Lord, you have reconciled some things in our lives through Jesus, and we're thankful for that. We come to worship you. Lord, we seek your presence. We want to just draw near to you this morning, and we would ask that you would draw near to us in, in new ways as uh, we sit under Phil's teaching and we listen to your word proclaimed. God, we thank you that we can trust your word, that um, we can uh, just be strong in our faith because of your word. And It's a privilege to, uh, to be able to have such freedoms. We thank you for that. We thank you for um, just the opportunity to uh, call ourselves your children. God, we love you, and we just pray that uh, you'd be glorified today and uh, that you would um, just turn our hearts towards you, and, and Lord, that you would change lives this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Matt. We have all heard at some point, or at least I am just generalizing when I believe that you have heard this, but I think it's probably true. We have all heard the expression, there are two types of people in the world. Let's just make sure we're on the level playing field. How many of you have heard that expression? And then you fill in the, the rest of the sentence with a number of different things. There's two types of people in the world and then just whatever you come up with. Well, here lately there have been some pretty humorous descriptions of that. There are two types of people in the world and then the things that follow are pretty funny. I want to share with you eight of the funny ones and then two that I've seen recently that'll just make you think. Here we go. Two types of people in the world. Number one. There's the people that cut their sandwich diagonally and the others that cut it right down the middle. Two types of people in the world. Now, I'm not sure I'd plant a stake and say that that's the only way that we can ever figure out the two different types of people, but it's still pretty funny. Number two, two types of people in this world. Those that, when they look at the app on their phone, it cannot have a number up in the corner, and then the other people that don't care. Wow, that's resonating with some folks. How many of you must clear those numbers? or you can't sleep at night. Wow, we have a ministry called Into the Light. Liz is the counselor for that. You might want to visit with her. She can help a lot with that. Here's number three. Two types of people in the world, original and spicy, or we might even say original or crispy at KFC. Number four. I like this one. Those that tear their Oreo cookie apart and those that eat it whole. Now, this is a little more serious, folks. How many of you are teared apart and scrape off that, that filling? You're, you're good, God-fearing people. How many of you eat that Oreo cookie whole? Wow. Wow. I'm not sure what that says about your soul, but I know it says something. Here's number five. Two types of people in the world, those that put the toilet paper on so that it rolls under and those that roll over. I am not kidding. This is a marriage counseling issue. How many of you must have it roll over the top? How many of you can handle it if it rolls over the bottom? Definitely the minority. Definitely the minority. And let me tell you, I've had marriages at odds with one another with this that have said in my office. Here's number six. I like this one. Those that put ketchup on the side and those that squirt it across the top of their fries. There has actually been a study done on this very issue. 26% of people in the United States of America will cover their french fries with ketchup while the rest do it the right way and put it on the side. It is it's really interesting. I mean, federal grant money was given to study this issue. Craziness. Here's number seven. 
Two types of people in the world, those that see their gas gauge plummet below the E and say, we can drive 10 more miles before we fill up, and those that have to fill up before it gets to half a tank. Now, let's just have fun with this. How many of you can keep on going after the reserves are depleted? Woo! How many of your spouses get really upset about it? Okay, that's what we're looking for. And how many of you like to always have a half tank or more? Uh-huh, there we go. Here's another one for you. Two types of people in the world, this resonates now. How many of you at 95% need to get your phone plugged in so you don't have to run the, the fear of it running out? And other people down to 5%, it's all okay. New things, new ways of looking at the two different types of people in the world. But watch this one, it'll make you think. There are two kinds of people in the world. Those who walk into a room and say, there you are. And those who say, here I am. Big difference but not as much as this one. There are two kinds of people in the world, those who seek God and those who seek to avoid Him. Both will be successful. That is quite insightful. It really is. Listen to it one more time. There are two kinds of people in the world, those who seek God and those who seek to avoid Him, and both will be successful. Now, I share all of those with you to say this. I believe that there are two types of people in the world. They could be measured by how they see vacation. For some people, vacation begins once you arrive at your destination. And for other people, vacation begins the minute the journey starts. How many of you are destination-oriented travelers? It begins when you get where you're going. And how many of you are all about the journey? Wow, that is really interesting. When I was younger, destination was all that mattered to me. You can ask Tina about that. She will verify it for you. We have driven from here to Kansas. It takes 24 hours to get from our front door to the door of either of our parents in Kansas. We have driven that straight through more times than we care to think about because in my mind, vacation didn't begin until we got there. And so the journey didn't matter. We had to get there. As I get a few more years under my belt, the journey becomes much more important to me. The same thing is true in Bible study. There are two types of people that study the Bible. Those where the destination, the one passage that you're looking at, is the only thing that really matters. And those that see the journey to get to that passage as just as important. There was a time in my life where I was destination-oriented in Scripture as well. I only wanted to look at that one passage of Scripture. As I get a few more years behind me, the journey becomes more important. I like the journey to get to the destination. This morning, we're going to apply a journey Bible study technique. Our destination is in the book of Philippians. We've been studying through that book. We just upended things one time for the 4th of July. Otherwise, we've been moving through it in what is termed an exegetical study approach, which means we've just been going verse by verse, making our way through it and looking at the depth of the passage. This morning, we are in that exegetical study. This is exactly where it would line up for us when we get to Philippians chapter 4. But I want us to take a journey before we get there, starting all the way back in the Old Testament in the book of Ecclesiastes. Would you find that book? However you have to do it. If you know right where Ecclesiastes is at, great, turn there. If you don't, go to your table of contents. If you need a little more help than that, get to the book of Psalms and start turning right, and you will get to the book of Ecclesiastes. It is an incredibly interesting book, starting with the title, 
the title is actually a Greek term in the Hebrew Scriptures. That makes it quite interesting. In the Greek language, the word Ecclesiastes means a person who calls an assembly. That's what Ecclesiastes means. And it is quite fitting when you see how the book begins. Listen to this, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. The person who has called the assembly is the preacher. Now, it happens to be, in this particular case, Solomon, King Solomon, the son of David, the leader in Jerusalem, leader over all of Israel, Solomon. Now, Solomon is this interesting character summarized by the word preacher, and in the original language, the word that is used means not only preacher, it means convener, Ecclesiastes, and it also means collector. Solomon was a collector of wisdom, a collector of Proverbs, and he has now convened an assembly to share his wisdom at nearly the end of his life, the things that he has come to realize, and he's going to do so as a preacher. It's interesting to me that that word in the original language for preacher means collector and convener, but most often it is used in regard to the preacher. As Solomon shares all of these things that he has learned throughout the course of his life in the book of Ecclesiastes, it turns into quite a sermon. It really does. He shares all of it as a preacher. Now, it's the Word of God, and it cuts right to the heart of the readers, dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. That's how powerful this book is. We don't have enough time to go all the way through it. It bears study like that where you start at the beginning and make your way all the way to the end, pulling out the different wisdom that Solomon has for us and studying it as in-depth as you possibly can. A few years ago, I preached through the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're interested in that, you can request that entire series. It is really good. But like I said this morning, we don't have time to go through the entire book. I want us to focus on just one thing that he has to say in chapter 7. So turn there with me. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 21. Remember, I said the things that he shares cut right to your heart. This is no exception. Do not take heart, verse 21, do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Again, one more time. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. There are a lot of times as parents that we teach our children to be careful what they say. Guard your tongue. Watch your mouth. Different terminology like that. But how often do we teach our children and even ourselves to be careful what we hear? That's what Solomon is saying. You be careful what you hear. You be careful who you associate with. You be careful the conversations that you allow yourself to be pulled into. That's what he's, whoo, there we go, a little cutout. That's what he's wanting us to grab hold of. Now, you can imagine that that probably comes out of his own personal experience. Be careful what you hear, lest you hear your servant cursing you. But remember, you yourself have probably cursed others. So guard your own tongue. 
but guard your ears. Now, when Solomon says that in the Old Testament, he is setting the table for some New Testament teaching that we really need to pay attention to. It's found in the book of James. Let's make another stop on our journey towards the book of Philippians. Now, in order to set the table for this, I want you to think about the author, who he is. James is the half-brother of Jesus. Later in his life, there'll be a point where he is called an apostle. He becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem, powerful person that helps settle some disputes among the other apostles and the early church. But James was not always a believer. James was not always a disciple of his brother. He wasn't always one who said, yep, my brother is who he says he is. Let me show you how we know that. If you're headed towards the book of James, make a stop in John chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now listen to this, for not even his brothers believed in him. I often tell you that when you're studying Scripture, you need to read it with the emotion behind the words. You'll find a, a lot more depth of meaning when you do that. To study these five verses, looking at it through the lens of emotion, you're going to have to apply some dripping sarcasm. But you're also going to have to look at the implications of what they're saying. Jesus is in the northern part of Israel. He's in the region of Galilee, which is where Nazareth is at. That's where Capernaum is at. That's where his home was. He wasn't down in Judea where Jerusalem is at because the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea were seeking to kill him. But the time of the Feast of Booths was at hand, and people were going to have to make their way to Jerusalem. And his brothers, who John tells us, didn't believe that he was the Messiah, but here Jesus is making these different declarations. They say to him, if you're really who you say you are, what in the world are you doing up here in Galilee around all these fishermen? Why don't you head south to Jerusalem where all the crowds are at? Go down there and declare yourself. Oh yeah, they're trying to kill you, but you ought to be able to get away from that. Shouldn't be a problem with that. So why don't you head south if you're really who you say you are? James was counted among that number. He was one of the brothers of Jesus that would talk like that. But after the resurrection, everything changed. James became a believer. He became a believer. Strong one. Powerful one. He became a great teacher. And in the book that bears his name, he would write some of the same type of wisdom that Solomon wrote about in Ecclesiastes. Take a look. James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Now Solomon is telling us, you be careful what you listen to. You be careful because it may very well be that other people will curse you, people that are very close to you, obviously causing conflict. By the time we get to James's teaching in the New Testament, James is saying, what causes that? What causes that? 
Now, he uses two penetrating words in his expose on this whole discussion. What causes quarrels and fights among you? The fact that he would put both of those words in the same idea, in the same thread, is intriguing beyond all imagination. The word quarrels is almost, it's not exactly the same, but it is almost the same as the word for war. It deals with bloody skirmishes between opposing parties. Maybe that's just two people. Maybe that's a group of people. But a quarrel is something that's become quite combative. It is a huge fight. It's the type of fight that divides families. It's the type of fight that divides friendships. It's the type of fight or war that divides businesses and partners. It is actually a a recipe for disaster within relationships. That's what James is talking about. What causes that among you? What would cause that type of division? Then he uses this other word, fights. The word fights is a much smaller scale word. It's talking about the the petty things that we deal with, the much smaller battles that we go through. A fight, if it is never resolved, becomes a quarrel. A fight, if there is never a way through it, becomes this point of division. And now we have James, the brother of Jesus, saying, what causes this among you? What is it? How does that type of conflict enter into your relationships? How does that happen? Well, James actually answers his own question, if you were paying attention. You desire and do not have. You murder, you covet, cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, which really is a way of saying you don't talk about it. You just don't talk about it. So your petty fights become massive quarrels, and division happens. Division happens. Solomon is back in Ecclesiastes saying, be careful what you listen to, because if you're not careful, it can turn into a fight and then into a quarrel. James is saying, why does that happen? Because of silliness, and eventually because we don't talk about it. Now, with those things in mind, let's get to our destination Philippians chapter 4, because this type of thing has made its way into the church in Philippi. Fights and quarrels. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 2. The Apostle Paul is the author. He writes, I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now let's stop and just take a look at what we know from this passage. We know that these two ladies are a part of the church in Philippi. You might say, how do we know that they are ladies? because their names are written in the feminine in the original language. Otherwise, we may not know that Euodia and Syntyche are ladies, but they are feminine in the original languages. So he's saying, I entreat these two ladies. We know that they were partners of Paul's in the ministry. We know that they are at odds with one another. We do not know what has caused the division. We have absolutely no idea. We know that they are not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture, 
But we know that Paul, when he's writing the book of Philippians and he's writing this letter to these people that he loves, this was a significant enough issue that he says, I I need these two ladies to agree in the Lord. I need them to agree in the Lord. And interestingly, we know this from the way Paul wrote verse 2. We know that he sees that there are two sides to the conflict. It isn't just one person that is in the wrong. We know that he's viewing this as a two-sided conflict. You might say, whoa, 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 preacher, how are you getting that? It is from the word entreat. Look at how it is used. One more time. This is the third time we've read this. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. At no point does he remove responsibility from one side of the conflict and place it completely on the other side. He's saying, I entreat both of you. In some translations of the Bible, the word urge is used instead of entreat. In other translations, it is plead. In other translations, it is beg. But in every translation, it is applied to both sides of the conflict because... Better than 90% of the time, it takes two in order for there to be conflict. It takes two sides. So here Paul is pointing that out. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Work this thing out. Whatever it is, work this thing out. Now Paul is grabbing a hold of some wisdom that we could easily trace back to the Old Testament. Keep your finger there in in Philippians chapter 4, but turn to the book of Proverbs with me. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 17. If you're holding on to your Bible and you're not sure that you want to travel all the way back to Proverbs, remember the journey matters, go back to Proverbs. I want you to see this verse. This is one of those passages that we do well to highlight to underline. Teach it to your children and make sure that you have grasped the wisdom of it yourself. It can help steer you through all kinds of different difficult situations. Proverbs chapter 18 verse 17, again, Solomon is the author of this, the collector of this proverb. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Now, that's how the English Standard Version of the Bible reads. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. There are some other translations that give a little more depth of understanding to it, at least for me, maybe not for you. I like this one. This is from the Living Bible. Any story sounds true until someone tells the other side and sets the record straight. That's why the apostle would say to the church in Philippi, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Because any story sounds true until you hear the other side. Listen to both sides. In the conflict and in conflict resolution, it's necessary for us to do that. We're going to listen to both sides because more often than not, it takes two. It takes two. And James would tell us back in his great book why it is that we get to this place of conflict. But Paul would tell us, get it settled while it's still in the realm of a fight. Don't let it become a quarrel because quarrels cause division. Quarrels cause problems. So get it settled. 
get it settled. Thankfully, the Bible shows us different paths in order to do that. So when he is entreating Euodia and entreating Syntyche to solve this thing, he's not just leaving them out there on their own. Jesus himself would show us a way through fights so that they don't become quarrels. Let me show you what I'm talking about. We can leave Philippians now and then make our way to Matthew. It's part of the journey. We got to our destination and we're headed home now. So let's go to the book of Matthew. Chapter 18, verse 15. Listen to what Jesus says. He's the author of these words. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now there it is. You go communicate. You go talk about it. James says a lot of the fights that we have because we don't talk about it. Jesus says, go talk about it. If your brother sins against you, go to him. Just one-on-one, you go talk to him. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector." Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Four-step process to make sure that a fight doesn't become a quarrel. If there is a conflict between you and another person, simple solution, best solution, go talk to them about it. Don't let it grow within you. Don't let it fester. You go talk to them right away. Don't bring other people into the conflict. You just go and talk to them. I don't know the actual statistics on it, and I wouldn't even want to venture a guess, but I would simply say this. The majority of conflicts between two people are settled right there. They are settled right there. And they never become quarrels. Because the conflict got settled right away. Jesus goes on to say, if that does no good, then take two or three people with you. Go talk about it. Now, that's two or three people that care. Two or three people that are working, that are involved in it. You take two or three people with you, and you go and you talk about it. You get the thing settled. If that doesn't work, and this is a minority of situations, very small number of situations, then you tell it to the church. By the way, step number two is a really simple thing in today's culture and society through counselors and mediators and other people that can help settle conflicts. It doesn't always have to be friends that have been lobbied into a situation. It can be counselors and mediators that become a part of it because you're working to stop the fight before it becomes a quarrel. Yodia, Syntyche, if you need help, Paul's saying to the church, you become the mediators. You become the counselors. You help them agree in the Lord. If that doesn't work, then you got to take it to the church. That happens very seldom, or at least it should happen very seldom. But sometimes it does. And then the fourth step, if that does no good, you treat them as a tax collector or a Gentile. Then the quarrel causes division. 
because you have tried everything you could possibly do up to that point to get the resolution to agree in the Lord because that's the best thing for the gospel. That's the best thing for the kingdom of God. So you settle it. You get it settled. Now that applies not just to organizations, it applies to every relationship because the enemy, our enemy, loves division. He loves to separate. So we have all this wonderful teaching in the Bible that gets us to a place where we can understand how to do it because God says it matters. It just matters. So we do it. We get involved in those things the way the Lord would want us to be involved in them. You might say, well, what in the world do we do if conversation and talking doesn't work? What do we do? Well, I would offer to you that we follow the pattern of Jesus because there is no better pattern to follow. Do you remember we talked just a few minutes ago from the Gospel of John about Jesus' family situation? They weren't believers. Sarcastically, they were trying to drive him down to Jerusalem to go and announce himself there and do all those types of things. You you remember that whole thing? Do you remember that I said after the resurrection, things changed dramatically? They did. Listen to this in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. Jesus has just ascended into heaven. Now listen, I love this verse. All these with one accord, that means the apostles, and they had just chosen Matthias to take Judas's place. So when we read all these with one accord, we're back to 12 apostles. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and here it is, and his brothers. And his brothers. They agreed in the Lord. His brothers became believers. I love that. I love that. Like I said, James in the book of Galatians will be called an apostle. The other brothers in 1 Corinthians will be called out as missionaries, carrying the message of their brother Jesus to all the world. They didn't just become believers and disciples. They became actively involved in their faith. Now that's reconciliation. That is reconciliation. How in the world did we go from John chapter 7 to Acts chapter 1, understanding the resurrection is in there, but what else was there? Well, at least three things that Jesus offered to his brothers. Time, space, and grace. And those same three things are available to us. In the midst of conflict, if resolution is not following, if agreement even in the Lord is not following, then you apply the same three things of Jesus. Time, space, and grace. And when those three things are laid out, God is in a position where He can do some remarkable work to heal relationships. Just so you don't forget them. Time, space, and grace. Want to say it with me? Time, space, and grace. That's how we utilize Matthew chapter 18 unto the point of resolution to follow the pattern of Jesus. And prayerfully, the same thing happens. Now, how long does that take? We don't know. In Jesus' situation, about three years at least with his brothers. 
That's a long time. That's a long time. That's a lot of patience. But that's God's place to work. And it works. It works. We still might ask, okay, then what am I supposed to do in the midst of that time and space? Because, man, I could dig a hole for myself while I'm waiting because patience is not my strong suit. Here again, just out of transparency, how many of you wrestle with patience? Oh, I'm so glad my hand's not the only one that's up. How many of you want to see things happen right now? And how many of you can find yourself even at a place where you're thinking, God, are you not listening to my prayers because this isn't happening right now? Oh, good, there's a few other people that are with me on that. It can be a struggle for us. So what do we do during that time and space? I would encourage you to figure out your definition of grace. What does it look like in the midst of conflict? Figure out what grace is. I was in my office Friday night late finishing some things up for today when an email popped up from Rick Warren in California. He's the the preacher at the Saddleback Church there. And this was just kind of a random email that popped up on my screen while I was sitting there working on today's message. And I found it to be quite intriguing. And right before that, I had seen a message from a a very good friend of mine that preaches in West Phoenix that is dealing with some of the same types of things and, and preaching the same types of messages. And I thought, wow, we must all be in the same place at the same time in the book of Philippians or other places in Scripture that this conflict resolution idea is raging for all of us right now. Well, Rick Warren put five different things up to help us understand grace in the midst of conflict. And I'll share them with you just as they were in his email. There's no editing from me on this. These are his five things. Take a look. Number one, recognize no one is perfect. The truth is everyone is in the same boat. The Bible says not a single person on earth is always good and never sins. Again, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20, we're all imperfect. Number two, relinquish your right to get even. Even if you think you deserve to retaliate, don't. If the hurt runs deep, you may have to commit over and over again not to get even. No matter what, leave the repayment to God. Number three, Respond to evil with good. When you can respond to evil with good, you'll know you fully release someone from the wrong they've done to you. Number four, refocus on God's plan for your life. Stop focusing on the hurt and the person who hurt you. Instead, refocus on God's purpose for your life. His purpose is greater than any problem or pain you might be facing. And number five, don't sit another day in your resentment. That's what it means to figure out what grace looks like in the midst of time and space and apply it so that you can agree in the Lord for the sake of the gospel. Conflict resolution is something that will touch every one of us at some point. It touches individuals and organizations. It even touches churches. We have to figure those things out. Some of you might think, what do you you mean it touches churches? Well, let me remind you, churches are made up of people. And that means that churches are never perfect. By the way, it's been well said, and I totally agree with this. If you ever find a perfect church, don't join it, you'll ruin it. That's, that's just a pretty good way of looking at it. It really is. Churches aren't perfect either, and conflict comes in. Church in Philippi was dealing with that issue. And so Paul says, 
Get involved. Help these ladies. Stop the fight before it becomes a quarrel so that things don't have to progress to division. Boy, that's true in relationships, every one of them. That's why this is such powerful teaching. Starts in the Old Testament. There are many waypoints all the way into the New Testament so that we pay attention to it. I hope something helped you today. Why don't you stand and pray with us? Father in heaven, boy, you know what we need. And you know when we need it. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for the way that you line up Scripture to our hearts. Lord, that's at least been very, very true for me personally. I know it is true for us as a church. And I've seen that truth revealed in so many other lives. You line Scripture up for what we need. Thank you for that. I'm equally grateful that you know how powerful relationships are for each one of us. So, Lord, you don't like to see brokenness and division. Thank you for that. But, Father, I am especially and eternally grateful for the fact that you show us what redemption looks like. As you have redeemed us, you show us how it works. So, Lord, help us do that. Help us carry out redemption. And help us do it with great grace. Lord, I know that there are broken relationships represented in this room. I pray for healing. I pray for redemption. Pray for clarity, and I pray, Lord, for spiritual truth. And when we find that, I pray that we'll apply it. Lord, I'm asking that in your name and for the sake of the gospel. Amen.